from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Um, my name's Dan Baltz. I work at the Washington Post. Uh, we have been a, a charter... Thank you. We've been a charter sponsor of this wonderful event uh, since its inception. Uh, this is one of the great weekends in Washington, and it's wonderful to be with a group of people who still believe in the printed word. Uh, for those of us who are continuing to fight the fight, uh, it, it's often been said that those of us who are in my business of journalism write the first rough draft of history. Uh, our next author does the real thing. Uh, deeply researched and, and uh, elegantly written. Uh, John Lewis Gaddis is perhaps the country's most preeminent historian of Cold War and that era of our national history. He's a Texas native. He's now the Robert A. Lovett Professor of History at Yale and also director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy. Uh, among his many awards, he was uh, uh, awarded the National Humanities Medal in 2005. Um, Professor Gaddis has written extensively about the Cold War period, and he is here to talk about his monumental biography uh, of George Kennan, George Kennan, George F. Kennan, and American Life, which, among other things, won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for Biography. Uh, this book was three decades in the making. Uh, he perhaps can describe that long gestation period and the reasons behind it. Uh, Henry Kissinger, who reviewed the book in uh, uh, the other paper up north, uh, <laughs> described this biography not only as magisterial, but, quote, as close to the final word as possible on one of the most complex, moving, challenging, and exasperating American public servants. Uh, Professor Gaddis will be signing books starting at 3 p.m. Please welcome him to our stage. Thank you, Dan. Um, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for this um, wonderful crowd, which is a great tribute to the concept of this festival. So it's my first experience. My first, pardon? Okay. My first experience here, and a pleasure to be here. Um, the book is called George F. Kennan, An American Life. And as Dan pointed out in the introduction, this book took 30 years to write. So you might wonder why that is the case. Um, I can point out in my defense that I have actually taken a shorter period of time to write my life of George Kennan than Robert Caro has taken to write his life <laughs> of Lyndon Johnson. But, of course, he's written four volumes at this point, and I've only done one. One other point by way of comparison between these two projects. Robert K. Rowe does not have to explain who Lyndon Johnson was. Sometimes I have to explain who George Kennan was because he was never President of the United States. He was never Secretary of State. His highest level position in government was as ambassador uh, to the Soviet Union and to Yugoslavia. He himself would have, 
He himself would have been the first to say that these were failed ambassadorships. Uh, and so uh, why um, a book on the life of George Kennan? My answer, and it's only my answer, it would not be universally agreed with, it seems to me, is that um, it's always good to write a book about someone who saved Western civilization. And while it may be something of an exaggeration to say that George Kennan saved Western civilization, if you think it through, there is a case to be made uh, in this regard. Because all civilization, in fact, was imperiled uh, in the half decade or so of the Cold War. Anyone uh, in Washington predicting some 50 years ago when nuclear weapons had reached lethal proportions on both sides, anyone um, predicting with confidence that we were going to get out of this alive would have had an uphill battle to make that prediction. Uh, and surveys that were taken in that age suggested that uh, most Americans fully expected to die in a nuclear war. Now, a lot of people contributed to that fortunate outcome, to the fact that it did not happen. George Kennan is by no means alone in that regard. But I think he was critical in coming up with the idea, with the grand strategy, of how that catastrophe uh, could have been avoided. Because at the time that he began to rise in influence in the United States Foreign Service, the period right at the end of World War II, first couple of years of the Cold War. The prevailing view in Washington and in other Western capitals was that there were only two choices in confronting the Soviet Union, which clearly was no longer going to be an ally in the way that it had been an ally during World War II. There were those who said that Hitler is, uh, Stalin is another Hitler and we have to simply prepare for war with the Soviet Union. There were those who said, uh, that war would be catastrophic if fought, so the only solution is to appease Stalin, cut some kind of deal uh, with Stalin. Neither was a good example, uh, a, a, a good precedent. Uh, nobody wants to fight another war in that situation. Uh, appeasement is discredited from the experiences of the 1930s. So could there be a middle path uh, between war and appeasement? And this was the concept that George Kennan himself, more than any other uh, individual within the United States government, worked out in the period between 1945 and 1946. He is still a relatively obscure uh, foreign service officer serving in the embassy in Moscow, uh, is brought back to set up the curriculum at the new National War College down at Fort McNair. And in the course of those two critical years, works out a scheme which came to be known as the strategy of containment, which operated on the proposition that time was on the side of the West. That whereas Marx had said of capitalism that it contains so many internal contradictions that it will eventually destroy itself, Kennan flipped Marx on his head and said that is true of the Soviet system. Communist ideology does not fit Russian national character. And in time, the Russian people will themselves overthrow communism. Whether that will happen as a revolution coming up from below or whether it will happen as a result of a leader uh, realizing from above 
that communism does not fit Russian culture. Kennan was not sure. He was not sure how long this would take. Sometimes he said 15 years, sometimes he said 20, 25 years, sometimes he despaired of it ever happening. But this was the vision, this was the idea that he had. Time was on our side. If we could afford to be patient, if we could keep ourselves under control, if we could build up our side of the geopolitical balance, which certainly meant uh, orchestrating the recovery, the economic recovery of Western Europe, the Marshall Plan, uh, several other things. If we could simply hold the line, then in time, uh, the Soviet system would, from the weight of its own internal contradictions, implode and it would do so peacefully. A war would not be necessary. That's the vision of 1946-1947. Not a bad prediction, actually, of what wound up happening between 1987 and 1991. If you think about it, uh, that's a pretty good anticipation of that. So one of the things that I have been interested in as someone who teaches grand strategy at Yale is the question of how someone could make, could see that far into the future, could make that great a prediction in the first place. Did this come from the careful study of international relations theory? Did it come from the detailed reading of diplomatic history? And what I found, very much to my surprise, is that it came from neither. It came from reading great books. And this brings us around to why we're here today. It came from reading great books of Russian literature, not in the Soviet period. There weren't that many yet in this period uh, about the Soviet era. But the great literature, the great literary classics of 19th century Russia, which Kennan, as a trained expert, as one of the first trained experts in Russia in the American Foreign Service, was able to read in the original. His Russian was better than that of many Russians themselves, uh, they would often say. And he used his time as a young man training in the Foreign Service to study the culture of 19th century Russia, to study that culture through the literature of 19th century and very early pre-revolutionary 20th century Russia, um, and to draw certain conclusions about Russian national character, Russian culture uh, from that. So who were the authors that he read? Well, they, they are the obvious suspects, certainly Pushkin, uh, certainly Gogol, uh, certainly Turgenev, uh, of course Tolstoy, of course Dostoevsky. Um, but someone else who was most influential, who you might have thought least probable in this pantheon of Russian literary heroes, and this is Anton Chekhov. Uh, it's very interesting that when George Kennan gave his first academic lecture at an American university, this is in October of 1946. He's invited to Yale, I'm happy to say, to speak. But he spends about a third of his time, very much to the puzzlement of his hosts, talking not about the Cold War or the Soviet Union or containment, but about Chekhov. So why would he talk about Chekhov? And what is the connection uh, to containment in his mind? Well, the connection was this. Uh, Chekhov had written a story, short story, called The New Villa. 
The short story was about a landlady, the mistress of an estate, who had wanted to build a school on a hill and of course needed the help of the locals, needed the help of the peasants to build the school. But building the school was going to be hard work. It was going to involve moving rocks off the top of the hill. It was going to involve uh, cutting down trees for lumber. It was going to involve a lot of energy and organization. And of course, famously, in 19th century Russia, peasants are not easy to organize. This is a recurring theme, of course, in Tolstoy and in the other great Russian literary works of the 19th century. And so the mistress of the estate in Chekhov's story walks away disconsolately, fearing that this can never be done, the schoolhouse can never be built. But the village blacksmith, Rodion, takes pity on the mistress of the estate, follows her down the path, and says, don't worry, mistress, give it time. Let them get used to the idea. Maybe it'll take two years. Maybe it'll take four years. Maybe it'll take 10 years or so. But if you let the peasants themselves come around to the idea that it would be a good thing to have a school in this village, they will cheerfully and eagerly uh, do the work. It's simply that you can't tell them what they have to decide they want. That's the principle. And from this, uh, Kennan explained to the Ailes, this is how we have to handle the Soviet Union. We understand that this system is contradictory that this system is not going to succeed, uh, that this system, uh, even at that point, 1940s, but certainly in the future, is going to suffer from all kinds of uh, 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 factors that are going to make it uh, unworkable. But the role of the United States must not be um, to try to overthrow that system. The role of the United States must be to try to hold the line in the world so that the Russian people themselves could come around to the idea that they wish to change the system themselves peacefully. That's the key to it. And I'm fascinated that this concept, which underlies centrally the entire strategy of containment as practiced by the United States and by its Western allies uh, through the whole last half of the Cold War, I'm fascinated that this came from a Chekhov short story. And what does this say about how we should be training young people today? How does this uh, uh, affect how we should be thinking about training leaders today? We debate these questions quite a lot at Yale, I can tell you. We're pretty confident that we are training uh, in one way or another, whether well or badly, uh, a lot of future leaders at a place like this. And so we worry about what we put into their heads. We worry about what kind of training uh, we can give them. They get training in the social sciences. They get training in the trendy topics like um, migration, for example, or environmental studies, or uh, uh, perhaps uh, psychologies of leadership, all of this kind of thing. What we think they don't get enough of and what we are trying to remedy in the course that we teach my colleagues, Charlie Hill and Paul Kennedy and I on grand strategy at Yale, is exposure to the great classical works. Because there is a reason why people come back to the classics. Uh, we go as far back in our course as Thucydides, Sun Tzu, Homer, Herodotus. There is a reason why people come back to these works. And that is they contain 
elemental observations that apply across time, space, and I think also scale, whether at the top level of leadership or in someone's own uh, personal life. And the Chekhov story, how Kennan used Chekhov as the key to his grand strategic insight uh, in saving civilization, or at least more modestly, orchestrating the strategy of containment, is I think a beautiful illustration of the necessity for including the great classics, the great books, in the training of any leader, whatever the leadership role uh, that person is aiming for. So that's really my message uh, this afternoon. The great books are relevant. I found them to be extraordinarily relevant in writing about the great man whose biography I have just uh, finished uh, writing. Um, but it has caused me to think about uh, the question, are we putting enough emphasis on not just books, but the great books, the great classical books, the books that some people may erroneously think are out of date. But I can assure you, ladies and gentlemen, they are not. That's where I want to stop and see if that has generated any questions. Yes, sir. What you've learned about the Cold War, uh, apply, how does it apply to the situation as we have in the Middle East now, especially Iran I'm interested in? The um, question was how does uh, what we learned from the Cold War apply in situations like uh, the Middle East and particularly what we have in uh, Iran? Um, the idea of containment I think may well be applicable to Iran. That is one of the two options that are being discussed. Uh, and indeed, it's the option that has been practiced up to this point to try to uh, uh, orchestrate a, a strategy of containment. Because we can all see that Iranian society contains great contradictions uh, within it. And if, in fact, time is on our side in that situation, then Kennan's containment strategy would make sense for Iran. The question is, is time on our side? Kennan was always careful to make a distinction between Stalin and Hitler. He always said containment would not have worked against Hitler because Hitler had a timetable for wanting to do what he, Stalin had no timetable. If you can answer for me what, where Iran falls into that category, I can offer you a book contract right away. Yes. Hi, I have two short questions. Uh, I'm in the middle of David Hoffman's book uh, called Hand. Uh, first question is, uh, if you look and study the history of Gorbachev and Yeltsin and others, did they have the same sort of education as Kennan did? And my second question is, after he left and he went to the Institute of Advanced Study, did Gorbachev come and visit and have a one-on-one -on -one talk with him? Uh, the first question is that, no, I do not believe that the Russian leaders um, had the kind of education that George Kennan uh, did. Uh, you have to remember, first of all, about the Soviet leaders that uh, from Lenin to Gorbachev, none of them went to college. Gorbachev was the first to actually go to college since Lenin. And then Gorbachev studied law. But there's a difference because uh, uh, they grew up with Russian culture. Uh, Gorbachev certainly knew the Russian countryside and so on. So it's not as though they had to study in school many of these things. Uh, they were instilled in their culture. It came uh, instinctively. 
very much as uh, American culture would be instinctive with us. We can understand American culture without even reading Huckleberry Finn, although it helps to read Huckleberry Finn. You know. uh, so that's my first answer. On the Institute for Advanced Study, no, uh, Gorbachev never actually came to Princeton, but Kennan did meet Gorbachev on a couple of occasions. The first occasion was Gorbachev's first trip to the United States, which is here, December 1987, to sign the Intermediate Nuclear Forces uh, Treaty. And there is a big reception at the Soviet Embassy for Gorbachev. Kennan, uh, who had actually been kicked out of the Soviet Union by Stalin in 1952, is invited to come to the Soviet uh, embassy and to meet Gorbachev. And Gorbachev immediately recognizes him, embraces him, and pays him an extraordinarily handsome tribute, which Kennan always remembered. Um, it was something like this, Mr. Kennan, uh, we in our country understand that someone can be a patriot in another country, but at the same time be a great friend of our country, and that is how we regard you. So it was just the right thing to have said. Whereupon, uh, there was a, a very long Gorbachev speech. Uh, George sat down at a table with a lot of other luminaries. Uh, he was seated next to a strange-looking woman who was, uh, had purple long fingernails and uh, was smoking um, a cigarette uh, in a whole constant chain smoking. And George's hearing was beginning to go at this point. This is 1987, but somebody told him she is the widow of Lenin. And he kept saying to himself, how could she be the widow of Lenin? And he came home to Princeton puzzled by this. And he asked his secretaries, and they say, you have just met Yoko Ono. You mentioned that a key to Kennan's analysis and effort was the idea that the Russian national character would eventually, given time, overthrow the Soviet communist system. Given, though, the fact that the Soviet Communist Party had no intention of that happening and had plenary power and had as their principal, one of their principal agendas to transform the Russian national character, did, did Kennan ever experience some misgivings that this project was not going to succeed, that they'd, they'd win first? Kennan experienced uh, great misgivings throughout his life. I mean, he went through his entire life never free of misgivings about just about everything, including himself. But one of the big ones was, uh, was time on our side for this process to uh, take place. And his concern about nuclear weapons, which begins to develop in the late 1940s and continued throughout his life, <coughs> was one of the great question marks in his mind uh, in this. He became a very stiff and strong and vehement critic of American foreign policy, partly because of the emphasis on nuclear deterrence that we began to place, and he regarded that as uh, highly dangerous. When Gorbachev finally emerged at the top in the Soviet Union, Kennan was um, interviewed, I think, on McNeil Lehrer, and the question came up for Kennan. Professor Kennan, how can you explain the emergence of Gorbachev, so different from previous Soviet leaders? And George said, I can't. 
he was very honest about this. He was as surprised as anybody else was. But I had occasion to remind him on many occasions, you know, that if he had just gone back and read what he had said back in the 1930s and in the 1940s, uh, it is certainly the case that he foresaw a process that could produce a leader like Gorbachev. The problem is that George had the same problem that I have, which is that I can't remember what I said in print uh, 20 or 30 years ago. My students are often reminding me of this. You said this then. Yale alumni are even worse about this, uh, and I'm just totally clueless. Yeah. Um, in 1991, Pope John Paul II published an encyclical in which he made the argument that communism in particular and socialism in general failed be, uh, for anthropological reasons, that it was contrary to human nature. So I was curious what you thought about that broader argument, Russian uh, culture being one facet of it, from both Kennan's perspective and your own. Sure. Well, um, I always had great respect for the Pope to begin with, uh, and uh, I think that's a, a pretty fundamental um, insight, which seems pretty obvious to us now, but I think one of the great obligations of a teacher and a historian is to point out the things that were not obvious back then. And that's the way I would answer that question. Uh, in fact, I really, I'm teaching a big lecture course right now, and uh, I'm instructing my TAs to really go back and try to get the students to see why people thought differently back then. And on this issue, there were plenty of people um, in Eastern Europe, in the Soviet Union itself, uh, even in Western Europe, even some in the United States, who were disillusioned with both capitalism and democracy and did believe that uh, communism, command economies, authoritarian systems <coughs> were the wave of the future. And of course, if you had lived, as some of you did, through the generation or through the decade of the 1930s when both democracy and capitalism were failing on a global scale, there would have been reason to admire what was going on in the Soviet Union uh, with the five-year plans with no unemployment and so on. It looked like that society may, might have the solution. The problem is it did not wear well. The problem is it turned brutal. The problem is there was no accountability. There were no safeguards. And so what started out with the best of uh, intentions, what was compelling enough that millions of people were willing to die for it as they did in the Soviet Union in World War II and even before. Nonetheless, it turned out to be a big disappointment. And I think the lesson here is that uh, planning is uh, ultimately tricky, sometimes dangerous, for any human being to develop the hubris to say, I can plan the life of any other human being. Uh, and particularly millions of human beings, is, it seems to me, the height of arrogance. And because it is the height of arrogance, there are only two ways out of it. One is to admit that you're wrong, and then the other is to shoot anybody who says that you're wrong. And, of course, that was the option that Stalin, though not his successors, uh, ultimately chose. So I circled back to democracy and capitalism as being uh, certainly messier than these uh, systems, but ultimately more humane, and I suspect that's what the Pope had in mind in um, saying that. Yes? Do you think the uh, Cold War and is uh, 
a phenomenon that was unique to the 20th century and the ideological conflicts which were uh, spawned during that? Or is it something we'll see repeated in this century whenever two countries with nuclear weapons and an adversarial relationship uh, find each other in a hostile relationship? Well, it's a good question, but I think uh, part of the way to understand it is the Cold War was not the first Cold War. There are plenty of other examples in history of uh, nations that were hostile to each other and had uh, accumulated a lot of arms and whatnot, uh, who actually never went to war with one another, uh, or at least uh, not for in uh, quite a long time. Britain and the United States are a very good example. There was, of course, the unpleasantness in 1812, but uh, I was talking to a distinguished British historian just the other night, and he said, oh, we've, we've forgotten that now. Forget about that. So it is possible to have these kinds of uh, rivalries. And international relations theory, which is about the balance of power, would uh, suggest this is what's going on when power is being balanced, whether it's among two great powers or whether it's among several great powers. It's a Cold War, uh, and sometimes it's a cold peace. It's somewhere in between. What was distinctive about the Soviet-American rivalry, which I think is not likely to be replicated, was the fact that two great powers dominated the world. And the person to thank for that is Adolf Hitler, who by uh, uh, really destroying the capacity of the Europeans to act as great powers, created a power vacuum into which the Americans and the Russians uh, moved. But that was a dis distinctive development, and I don't see uh, anything comparable to that happening. I certainly do not see the Sino-American relationship as being anything like that. Um, I think also uh, nuclear weapons as an instrument of power for great powers is not nearly as significant as it used to be. The great powers, um, whether wisely or uh, simply because they were lucky, learned that there aren't that many things you can do with a lot of thermonuclear weapons. Um, what good does it do to blow up your competitor if in the process you're blowing up yourself as well? Uh, so the limits to violence, the recognition that there have to be limits to violence. This is one of the great unstated achievements of the Cold War that both sides work themselves around to. So the likelihood of a Soviet, uh, uh, the likelihood of a giant nuclear war of the kind that people feared in the Cold War, I think is extremely remote now. The likelihood of some nuclear weapon being used somewhere is I think actually greater because of nuclear pr proliferation. But it won't be 10,000 weapons being used simultaneously. It will just be one or two. And that's a big improvement over the condition that we faced in the Cold War, for sure. Mm -hmm. Sir, I'm a student over at NDU at the Eisenhower School. We're currently studying Kennedy as a great uh, strategic advisor. Beyond his uh, unique perspective and using the classic Russian classics, what other traits or capabilities did you see of him that made him a great strategic advisor? And second, do you see any person that is that next theorist to give a grand theory for the multipolar world we currently live in? Well, I had the privilege of speaking over at NDU on Canon back in February. And uh, one of the things I found myself saying is that while George Kennan was a great thinker and a great intellectual and a great historian, um, and had a powerful impact on American thinking in the Cold War. I would not call him a great advisor. That's something else again. 
A great advisor is somebody who is able to work with other people, to work with superior uh, and, and subordinate uh, officers. A great advisor is someone who is able to give advice if the advice is not taken to bounce with that blow and come back and see what does the boss really want and then what do we do next and so on. A great advisor, if his ideas are rejected, does not emulate Achilles and go off and sulk in his tent. And that's what George did uh, on many different occasions. So the people who had to work with him, uh, people like Dean Acheson, uh, for example, is, uh, uh, particularly, but also John Foster Dulles, many other people, uh, found him very difficult on a day-to-day -day basis to work with because once policy was settled, it was not settled in George's mind. He was always trying to reconsider it. So that's much more of an academic temperament than it is an advisor temperament. And that's why I think ultimately the academy, uh, specifically the Institute for Advanced Study, was the better place for him uh, than uh, uh, the State Department in the long run. And I think he would agree with, would have agreed with that statement. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, I have a friend uh, who I'll quote says that the best war is the one that isn't fought. And so the Cold War, in some sense, was a good war. But there were uh, other wars around the edge of it. And I'm thinking particularly of Vietnam, since I'm of that age. And your comment, the lesson you took from Kennan's uh, reading Chekhov of the importance of great books, which I don't argue with, Chekhov was also a great book about Russian culture. And what are the great books, you know, there, I expect, I've read some, such as Fire in a Lake, that maybe were good books about the Vietnam culture. What are the great books we should be reading about Islamic culture, Iranian Persian culture? Because it seems to me, we don't know enough about that great set of books. We know the Western books. Well, my answer would be that uh, among those we that you talked about who don't know enough about those topics, I would include myself, I, uh, not feeling really qualified to give you a recommendation on that. Um, I'm not sure that, we, that there is a consensus yet on what the great books would be uh, to read. I would simply say this is where exploration is needed and the exploration should uh, include works of history works of strategy, works of fiction uh, as well. Um, and what one really needs to look for, I think, in searching out such books is the quality of timelessness. Does the book in question transfer well over time? When you said at the outset that the best war is the one that is never fought, what popped into my mind was exactly the same language coming from Sun Tzu 2,500 years ago in the great Chinese strategic tradition. So that's how I look for a classic work that somehow people keep coming back to it. But maybe it's too early uh, to find that work in uh, the other uh, cultures that you mentioned. Maybe not, enough enough, maybe not enough of us know the languages to be able to do this. I would call your attention to what I think is the really great achievement of Henry Kissinger's book last year on China because this is someone who had spent his career wrestling with China. But at the age of uh, 87 or so, uh, now 89, uh, decided to try to learn something about the culture of China. 
and then reconsider his own record in the light of what he had learned. Not that Henry was going to learn Chinese at that age, but he certainly had good help in writing that book. And it's been fascinating to listen to him rethink his own experiences in China in the light of that 2,500-year uh, history uh, of the writing of strategy. He says, things are now so much clearer to me than they were when I was actually having to deal with these issues. So when it's possible to do that, uh, I think it's well worth the time. Yeah. Hello, sir. Sorry, as a former NDU student, um, I think there's an argument to be made that the 21st century history is moving faster than in the latter half of the 20th century. And as I see the, a great deal of bandwidth within executive agencies trying to get their arms around grand strategies, develop strategies and policies for the long term, I can't help but question what a waste of resources because the strategic environment changes so quickly. Uh, do you have any comments, any thoughts on how strategic thought and the value of long-term strategies has changed in the 21st century? Well, first of all, I'm not sure I buy the argument that history has speeded up. <laughs> I think that uh, if you um, think about the size of airplanes, just as an example, you know, uh, airplane technology, the planes that we fly across the Atlantic, and you know, the structure of those is pretty much what it's been for more than half a century or so. Think about the half century before that, when there were no airplanes, period and look at the uh, impact that those changes in technology had. Every age has got certain technologies that make history look like it's speeding up. And obviously computer technology, communications technology is that for our age. Actually, I can guarantee you it proceeds at the same pace, always. It just looks different in that regard. But certainly because of the new changes in uh, communications technology, it is possible for us to know much more about what's going on around the world instantaneously. And of course that clogs the brain and slows the synapses to have that much information coming in. I think we've known for a long time that uh, the dangers of having too much uh, information and therefore not being able to think one of the case studies that we study in the Grand Strategy course is uh, the career of uh, Philip II of Spain and the Spanish Armada and the competition with Elizabeth I. And Philip's problem was that he insisted on running the entire Spanish Empire himself, personally. He never had time to think or sleep or anything else. Uh, and that is what the new technology has pushed us uh, into. So I think we will learn in time to cope with it. Uh, I think the obvious answer, which neither my wife nor I have mastered yet, is to turn off the machines at a certain point in the day. Uh, but I think that eventually we will adjust to it. And I would treat it in the context of these other technological changes that, uh, that I've mentioned, which give you the appearance that history is speeding up. In your uh, discussion of uh, Chekhov, you noted the idea that uh, Russia was perhaps better than Russians. It gave me an introspective question. Is America a culture? Uh, is it an idea? And is the culture or idea of America better than Americans? And what is it that we need to do to make those two come together? I don't think, um, I don't think you really are getting at culture if you say it's better than people. I think culture is people. 
And I think that uh, the embarrassing things about America are as much part of American culture as the things that we are proud of. I think Kennan would have said the same would be true of Russian culture uh, as well. It's all culture, and it's extremely important to uh, study that uh, and to do it in, in the right way. Uh, all I'm saying is um, trust the classics. I was in a meeting um, just on Thursday with a colleague planning the curriculum for the first group of uh, students who are going to be going to the new Yale campus in Singapore. And before they go there, they will come to Yale uh, for about five weeks uh, or three weeks in the summer. And so my colleague and I have been given a week and we were trying to decide what we would teach these kids uh, in the first place. And we have pretty much uh, decided that we are going to start with Homer and we're going to do the section, uh, the embassy to Achilles as a way of illustrating uh, the need for diplomacy. We are going to do something from the Aeneid, the story of the Trojan horse, as a way of illustrating intelligence and surprise uh, and craft versus uh, strength. You know. We will do Machiavelli as a way of illustrating the two faces of the state. The state has to pursue its own interests, which may require it to use violence at the same time, but then the state must reflect the aspirations of the people, which brings in morality, and the two are in, uh, 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 uneasily balanced, let's put it that way, against each other. We are going to use Kant and the idea of perpetual peace and the idea of a republic and the idea of the transparency of republics, but we're going to pair Immanuel Kant with the poetry of Walt Whitman uh, and American democracy as a way of illustrating those two things. And then our plan at the moment, subject to revision, is to require every line of Moby Dick. Now, <laughs> this is not me, this is my great colleague Charlie Hill who has dashed off this curriculum just uh, as Charlie is, is uh, capable of doing like in five minutes. But the more, the more I think about it, the more I think it's perfect for these kids who will be coming for the first time. So I think we have time for one more. Uh, yes, hi. Um, I wanted to ask about um, what your thoughts are about Francis Fukuyama's uh, theory about democracy being inevitable and how that relates to containing non-state actors as we face in today's world. Well, I have a theory about theorists who say that their theories are inevitable. <laughs> and my theory is they are inevitably wrong. Uh, that's the problem with theory. Theory is only half of reality. Reality operates against theory and it subverts theory and it surprises you and that's the importance of studying history and culture. Now, Frank Fukuyama, together with some other scholars in the late uh, 1980s, was onto something important and I give him credit that it had not really been seen very clearly by historians. And that was the number of states that had gone democratic in the 20th century, uh, the uh, uh, quantum jump in the number of democracies uh, from the beginning of the century to the uh, time he was writing, which was about 1989 or so, when the first iteration of that article. And that's the kind of thing that is so big that it's easy not to see it. And I credit him and the other theorists of international relations uh, for seeing that. Where I question them 
was that they turned a generalization about the past into a prediction about the future. And that, I think, is highly dangerous. Uh, that's how theory goes wrong. And I think it actually had, it's one of the rare impacts, uh, one of the rare instances in which a theory of international relations actually influenced national policy. Because it seems to me both the Clinton administration and the George H.W. Bush administration operated under the premise that the wave, the movement toward democracy is inevitable throughout the world. It was both a neoliberal and a neoconservative idea. And it does seem to me that recent events uh, have, um, I think, properly caused us to be skeptical about that. So I'm fine with theory when it exposes patterns in history. I have a big problem with somebody who says those patterns are going to continue into the future. We just don't know. Okay, that's it. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.